Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the failed farrier, history fan, and your sometimes, most of the times, overly ranty host. Let's try some positive ones next time. <laughs> Joining me, uh, as always, is my co-host and producer, Moff Dula. Hello. Hello. Uh, How are it, you this morning, Cody? I talked over you. It's okay. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> You're fine. It's just anytime I ever say anything, you go, um, right as I'm talking. <laughs> it's okay. Um. Yeah, like that. Mm. Um. I asked you how you were doing. <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm tired. Yeah. It is an early morning. Because we're doing this early in the morning now. Coffee, though. Coffee. Stimulants. Yep. It's my third cup. This would be a great place to interject a coffee sponsor. <laughs> it would be. If anyone wants to sponsor us by basically just giving us free coffee. Yeah, we'll take that. And I'll, I'll take it and I'll tell people to drink your coffee. Drink drink this coffee. Unless it's really bad coffee. All 20 people listening to this podcast. 20? <laughs> wow, you're really highballing yeah. us. Yep. Being optimistic. My Where mother won't even listen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So what are we doing today? Um today is another tangential rant episode. Uh oh. This is the new thing where I take a break from the main narrative and rant tangentially about drugs and magic or Mormon cosmology or whatever I feel like ranting about. A lot of these episodes are either pulled directly from my book in the works or otherwise something I can't really put into the book for one reason or another, but today is something uh I'm pulling from my third chapter. Uh, all about the German mystics in Ephrata and the Brotherhood of Zion, which if, if you don't understand why that makes sense, we'll get into that. Cool. But uh, essentially, <laughs> these, these drug-using German mystics lived just a short distance from where a lot of the Book of Mormon was translated. Just around the corner? Just, yeah, just around the corner, uh, like four miles. Oh. So very close. Very close. Very close. Yeah. That's like what? Popeye's from here? <laughs> So despite the common misconception that North America was colonized by piously abstinent and sober Puritans, the environmental atmosphere of the colonies was deeply embedded in magical and alchemical philosophy, which often included the use of intoxicating substances. We kind of covered this in our first couple episodes. As Peter Lavenda reflected in his work, The Angel and the Sorcerer, Quote, Joseph Smith lived in a time and place that was replete with various cults and ceaseless sectarian strife. New prophets were commonplace. New revelations were the subject of endless discussion. There was no single form of Christianity that made it to the shores of the New World in the 17th century, but dozens of different denominations, some of which spun off even more schismatic groups in the century that followed. Many believers had come to America to escape various forms of religious persecution in England, France, and Germany from both Protestants and Catholics. In short, North America was colonized largely by heretics. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, among these colonizing religious heretics, several groups of German origin began to make waves among the communities in what would become Pennsylvania and Vermont. Uh, Pennsylvania and Vermont were colonies in the 13 colonies that were eventually formed America mm -hmm. um, that were like the German colonies. That's, okay. that's where all the Germans hung out. Um, one particular group of German pietists led by the botanist and mystic Johannes Kelpis or Kelpius. 
I was going to say, that's a name. Yeah, it's pretty cool sounding. At Johannes Kelpius. Johannes Kelpius. Johannes Kelpius. Uh, the, this group established themselves in the valley of the Wissahonkin Creek in Philadelphia while waiting for the prophesied end of days. Uh, this is what... It's our favorite topic. <laughs> yeah. J- Jesus is coming and everything's We're gonna, all going to die. Everything's going to be great afterwards. Yeah. Um, oh, you're all going to die. This is what the Mormons mean when they their official name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That means they're living in the latter days before Je- Jesus comes again. When Joseph started the church, they literally meant like any minute now, and after almost two hundred years, yeah. <laughs> um, any minute, minute now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, basically, groups like this have been popping up since uh, since since jo- Jesus died. Essentially, the first like uh, end of days Christians were in like the second century BC or second century A- AD. They were just like right after he died. Uh, they were like, well, well he's going to be back any minute now. He said he would, <laughs> so it'll be any minute. Just went out for some And it was, he went cream. out for some smokes. Oh, well, he just went <laughs> he to get a pack back. of cigarettes, I swear. But he, uh, uh, it was like in the third century AD where all these Christians that were like waiting for the end of days finally started to look at each other and like, well, maybe we should get some property and like, maybe we should get in this for the long Stop. haul because we don't know how long it'll be. And that's eventually <laughs> what became Catholicism. Okay. Was, was a bunch of end of days ah. Christians <laughs> figuring out that it might be a little longer okay. than they thought. All right. Start um, making all these rituals. Just keep this going. Mm-hmm. Track so, it along. So nearly, you know, 1500 years later, we have Joseph Smith doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before Joseph Smith, in the same area where he's doing all this with the Book of Mormon, this group of German mystics are doing the exact same thing. I like thing. how he said that they're just prophets popping up left mm-hmm. and right. Prophet, Revelations prophet, everywhere, prophet. sectarian strife. And it, it kind of plays into the idea that like Mormons love to talk about how Joseph Smith was just persecuted because of his religion. Mm-hmm. While some of that was true and mm-hmm. it definitely was used to like hype up mob activity. Yeah. A lot of the time there was other motives at play as well. Like I've mentioned it a few times, but they were kicked out of Missouri essentially because of uh, the the Missourians were afraid that the influx of Mormons would turn Missouri into a northern state. Right. I remember you talking about that because I was wondering. I was like, why would they leave their Eden? Yeah, of course they're going to shout things at the weird religious people and be kind of idiot assholes about it but the real reason they wanted them out was because of slavery okay so it kind of gets into this but like it plays to the idea that everybody was picking on everybody else for their religious craziness that they believed in everyone thought they were right and everyone else was just nuts not much has changed and (laughs) yeah it's a good thing we got that all figured out yeah i'm so glad we've evolved (laughs) uh yeah okay so also i would think that people um didn't like him I mean, I know we haven't gotten to it, but him like raping and molesting uh, and we'll get into his, it. it. Their daughters, his yeah. spiritual wives. So uh, that that might just a year after he starts the church, he's he's taken out of his bed by a mob and um, almost castrated and beaten to death. Yeah, I think and, you know that's. Not because of religious persecution, right, yeah. uh, surprisingly. He was maybe making himself a little too familiar with uh, one of the s- s- younger sisters of the guys that ran the mob. Right. Um, and <laughs> wouldn't you know it, uh, years later, that girl uh, that was their younger sister uh-huh. became one of his secret plural wives. So she was 16 at the time. So it 
<laughs> so knowing his character mm-hmm. uh, later down the line, it doesn't seem like a big stretch that maybe that mob got hyped up by some really fanatic religious guys, but the guys leading the mob were pissed off older brothers that were like, hey. A lot like um, he- Hale. Oh, yes. You know, but they just kind of went a little farther with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, that's that's yeah. episodes down the right. line. I know, I know. I've, <laughs> I've jumped the gun but, a bit on that, but I'm just saying, like, it's not all about like him saying he was a prophet. Well, it was happening everywhere to everybody, and everybody well, was hope... making fun of everybody else, and everyone well, thought you everybody mean else with was that, crazy. As not it, what, not with raping girls and yes, stuff. But yeah, I'm talking yeah. religiously. He wasn't special by being a prophet or making revelations. He really played himself to be, but it was a thing that was happening everywhere. Right, yeah. And kind of why he found so much success success in the area, because people already knew this was a thing, and this was like the thing they latched on to. Okay. Anyway, so, okay. so this 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 group led by Johannes Kelpius, this mystic and botanist, uh, while the, this group of Christian aesthetics uh, mm-hmm. consisted wholly of men at first, the group nonetheless <laughs> called them... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they were a bunch of uh, well, celibate men. now I know men. it sucks, but go ahead. Uh, Not a lot of fun, sexy times yet. Uh, We'll get to that, though. Uh, The group nonetheless called themselves the Society of the Woman in the Wilderness, referring to a passage from a biblical account regarding a woman fleeing to the wilderness during the apocalypse. Are Uh, they the women? No, it's like in devotion to this woman. It's a oh, okay. It's a play on the idea of it's uh, like Guadalupe or the yeah, okay, like Our Lady of Sorrows kind of nonsense. It's I think it's a it's a play on Sophia, the Gnostic goddess that is represent represents wisdom. Right, right, worshiping wisdom. Right, okay. uh, Much in the same way Catholics would worship the Virgin Mary for other specific reasons aside from like overarching Christianity. Um, okay, so she's, but they do have a, I'm guessing a male god. Oh yes, but yeah. uh, they're they're like directing their focus to this uh, society of the woman in the wilderness. Okay. biblical. It's a cool name. It is cool. It sounds sexy. Yeah. Although there's, it's not sexy at all. It's a bunch oh. of celibate guys. The uh, historian <laughs> John L. Brook said of the Pietists led by Johannes Kelpius. Quote, they lived as hermits along the Wissahawken and practiced a fusion of Lutheran liturgy and Rosicrucian ritual in a log tabernacle built true to the compass and 40 feet square. From the roof of the tabernacle, set high on a ridge overlooking the creek, they kept track of the stars through a telescope, which was really... Uh, this whole thing sounds really cool. That's cool at the yeah. time, and it was a big deal to have a telescope. Yeah. Continuing the hermetic quest, they contemplated the Kabbalah and worked alchemical stills and crucibles to distill the philosopher's stone. While Kelpius worked to improve education of the local children, to provide herbal medicine and to arbitrate disputes, as well as cast horoscopes and to define for water and metals. Sounds fun. Well, they were they were kind of just like a group of hermits that just lived in the backwoods, and they would provide free medical care and yeah. like education and they just to kids. Studied and nature. That doesn't sound so not bad. Not the worst. I mean, aside from the no fucking and <laughs> no yeah, masturbating, that's... not the worst thing in the world. So Johannes Kelpius kept regular correspondences with other religious and alchemical societies still in Europe, and the group's reputation slowly spread, promising a religious sanctuary for like-minded Germans. Hmm. Um, And we'll kind of get into this later, but Johannes Kelpius, when he made his way to America originally, made a couple stops um, with uh, prominent alchemical researchers at the time shall we say oh, okay. um and again we'll kind of get into this later but the work of pd newman has kind of established that 
all these stops he was making with these alchemists, there's a lot of drug activity going on. So when he shows up in America and establishes an alchemical still, provides Mm -hmm. free medical care and medicine to people, Mm -hmm. he had the ability and the wherewithal to make drugs. And it's very clear very quickly that they were using them. We'll get into the rituals where they talk about eating things and seeing angels and stuff, but... It's pretty clear what was going on, even if nobody was really talking about it, because nobody really saw any reason to. They weren't causing any problems. They were helping the community. Yeah. So nobody would talk shit about these guys. Of course not. Anyway. I mean, well, okay, they're men. Because, I mean, women did the same thing, and then they were all witches. So Exactly. Well, there is that. They were a bunch of uh, German-speaking, uh, <laughs> white, nice, polite guys. Mm-hmm. That uh, There's a reason why they found success in America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, in 1720, a new German immigrant by the name of Conrad Beisel made his way to Germantown, Pennsylvania, with the explicit intention of joining Kelpius's Society of the Woman in the Wilderness. Unfortunately for Conrad, once he connected with the group, he discovered that the founder, Kelpius, had passed away just sometime earlier, um, and the current membership had just had reduced to just two remaining hermits. Oh. Uh, they were still running everything and doing it, but it was just a just tiny operation compared to what he had heard about and traveled to America Aww. for. Uh, so Beisel stayed in the general area regardless, slowly amassing a diverse group of followers that eventually coalesced into the communal settlement in Ephrata. Uh, when I say communal, it's kind of like a Christian version of communism. Uh, everything's in trust. Nobody has any money. Everything's kind of kept in a storehouse and distributed to people as needed. Do you know how big this commune uh it eventually got up to a few hundred people but oh uh, at this time i don't know how quickly that happened anyway this is important because very quickly after the mormons um established themselves within like a year they start doing this kind of christian version of communism where everything's in trust and i'm going to keep hitting points where i'm like hey these guys did this (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's weird that you know the mormons did it a hundred years later but they lived just four miles from this settlement yeah so we're going to keep hitting those points. Okay. And this is in the same town? He didn't move? This is in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. So okay. he was... Originally, they started in Philadelphia. And Beisel showed up and moved them okay, so Beisel to Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Okay, okay. sorry. And you might have said they, that, and I just was No, I don't believe I did. Topics. I'm okay. a hack in Ephrata, and I don't believe I connected those you, dots. You are. <laughs> That's why you're here. So heavily influenced by alchemical and hermetic philosophy... The group in Ephrata acted as a religious precursor to the Mormon faith, like I've been saying. Mm-hmm. These striking theological and ritualistic correlations include, but are not limited to, and I'll keep hitting them, baptisms for the dead, a belief in the plurality of gods, so more than one god, as well as the idea that humans may eventually become gods themselves, this sort of cyclical thing where God creates or a space, a physical space where spirit can inhabit the physical And then there's this process where you can kind of elevate yourself to deity. Um, That's a very Mormon thing. Also, it was a very Ephrata thing. Performing temple rites. Is that the group? uh, Oh, when I say Ephratans, I mean like uh, the township they established in Pennsylvania, Ephrata. That's kind of the term people use to refer to the, it's like saying Mormons. Okay, so (coughs) Ephrata is the group 
and the, and city. the city. It would okay. be like if Mormons <clears throat> established I was getting confused because I thought it was a city and then you used it like a group. So oh, okay. I'm sorry. That clarifies. No, it would be like if the Mormons came to an area and named the town Mormon. Cool. And then you used it. It was a catch-all term for just talking about Mormon and Mormons. <laughs> so if I moved someplace and was like, this is Mazatula. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry if that was confusing. Okay. Um, they also performed temple rites in all white garments marked with esoteric symbolism or, uh, you know, uh, magic underwear, as the Mormons are known for, as well as revitalizing the ancient priesthood of Melchizedek. It was uh, uh, stain proof. <laughs> Is that what you mean by magic? No, it. Uh, uh, you don't know about magic underwear? <laughs> I'll talk about it later. I know you'll get into it later. <laughs> okay. Just imagine, like, I'm like, what could it be magic? Mormons what could wear make magic. Underwear magic. If it didn't get streaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, streaks. So it's poop resistant. Poop resistant. Okay. Stain resistant underwear. Yeah. Because you know they're white. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mormons have a, uh, they go in the temple and they wear um, white garments and that have like symbols on certain points uh, on them. On the body. And it's supposed to give you like magical protection against anything and everything from being sick to getting in car accidents and mm. the devil can't touch you. There's like all this and weird And you need a special stuff. thing for your genitals. Yes. For your genitals, Gentiles, Gentiles, <laughs> um, special symbol right on the front and the back. <laughs> really elevating this podcast, aren't we? Sorry. <laughs> you look so mad. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at. Okay, what just wanted this? to know how protected they wanted to be. Well, yeah, we might have an episode on magic underwear eventually, but yeah, it, it, it's like a talisman essentially. It's like a talisman in underwear form. Um, and it looks, it's not very sexy underwear. It looks like a t-shirt and uh, really big boxer briefs. Oh, I imagine them to be ruffled around the legs and the top. And, and it, at this time, they actually looked like sleeping garments. So like the, yeah. the, the yeah. Um, so anyway, they also uh, were revitalizing the ancient priesthood of Melchizedek, which is really important because jo that's kind of one of the re ways Joseph legitimized himself was like, since the time of Jesus, the church has apostatized and has fallen away from the true teachings of Christ. Um, I have been given the keys of the priesthood directly from the source of Peter, James, and John, who as resurrected beings just kind of showed up and gave me the priesthood. So my priesthood goes back directly to Peter, James, and John, who were given to it by Jesus, who was given to And he makes okay, this like so lineage Peter, of priesthood. James, and John are people in the Bible. The apostles in the, okay. in the, in the Bible. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and they were the ones that apparently founded the Christian church after Jesus died. Oh, so they had right, the keys okay. of the priesthood. Now I know and since in the in that you know 1500 1600 year um interval the church and the priesthood has apostatized and like fallen from grace and so he's reviving that apostolic priesthood mm. and giving mormons a direct lineage to like the good stuff essentially and this is not just his thing it was actually revived first by german mystics in pennsylvania oh so they said that too they said it too and first and uh, this, all of these things that are important to them will later pop up in Mormonism as though it were like unique to Mormonism. And mm -hmm. the whole point of this is that, no, it's not. And yeah. they were hanging out in an area where this was really popular and all over the place. Okay. Again, and like I said, they also were using communal notes of worth in lieu of money and like living in this like Christian communism. So they had their own currency? Yeah, they had the, like these little... Uh, 
notes of worth that were like money, but they basically had um, a different value system. It was like, instead of uh, this representing gold, this is a thing that represents you getting so many loaves of bread each week, or this is a thing that gives you a cow when your cow gets sick and dies. You know what I mean? Anyway, such similarities likely also extended into the use of entheogenic sessions for purposes of initiation, uh, which we'll get into. That's why we're here. Also from... Uh, John L. Brooks' book, The Refiner's Fire. Quote, At the core of Beisel's Ephrata lay the Gnostic wooing of the Virgin Sophia. This is the the goddess that represents wisdom. Elaborated by Jacob Bohm a century before, like the alchemical search for the Philosopher's Stone, the worship of the Virgin Sophia would lead to a Gnostic union with God. So by devoting yourself to wisdom and pursuing it, that would eventually bring you to God, rather than just trying to pursue God directly. This uh, philosophical wooing of Sophia or wisdom is just kind of a more poetic way of describing religious gnosis or a direct experience of divine wisdom, uh, that download that I was talking about in the Science of Psychedelics episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the achievement of gnosis was of such importance to the cloister at Ephrata uh, that in 1743, Beisel's cult completed the construction of a three-story temple, much like the Mormons, Uh, in which the group's male celibates, otherwise known as the Brotherhood of Zion, another thing that'll pop, that's a name the Mormons used, uh, this group would conduct blatantly entheogenic rituals in this temple. Although the specific recipe was kept a closely guarded secret, the events that took place within the building were unambiguously the result of strict religious observance in conjunction with regular intervals of entheogenic administration. As related by the 19th century author Julius Sash, the Brotherhood of Zion's new temple seemed to be strategically designed in order to achieve a very specific application of dose setting, set, sitter, and support, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. This is a very long quote. Bear with me, but uh, I feel like it's necessary so that you get a really good idea of what I mean by unambiguous. Okay. Don't um, get mad when I comment then if it's long. <laughs> Quote, this unique structure was erected on an elevation or hill within the bounds of the logger, which became known to the brethren as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain upon which Moses received the Ten, the ten Commandments. Is that's that the, with the burning bush? Yeah, that's okay. the mountain. So the bush was on top of the this mountain, Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And the chapter house itself uh, was called Zion. This is where like they lived, and the temple was where they conducted rituals. Okay, so they... They didn't live there, though. It was just a ritual house. Mm-hmm. And Zion is, in the in the Bible, Zion is the promised city of God. So, like, when, when the Messiah comes again, Zion is the city he'll establish, which will be, like, God's perfect city. Okay. Um, so, and okay. that's why all these Christians are trying to create Zion. Isn't that a little... To kind of lure Jesus to come. Isn't that a little cocky? <laughs> well, it's it's meant to be like an act of, of calling, kind of like you would call an angel magically. Is like, I set up the space for you. Okay. Come, uh, okay. come inhabit but, it and but... kill everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, he's not supposed to do it. He's not supposed to build the city. Yeah, it, it depends on who's interpreting this. But these guys thought if they built the city that they he'd would come. He'd come. All right. And the Mormons did too. I think it sounds cocky. It is a little bit. It's a bit presumptuous. You don't build a bird nest. Okay, so it's like you don't build the bird nest. You build the bird house for them to put the nest in. And that's kind of what they think that they're doing. But it's just, it's a bit presumptuous of 
I think to think that God gives a shit about what's going on with you, <laughs> but I'm I'm a bit of a pessimist, so, uh, <laughs> and I kind of go towards the Gnostic uh, clockwork idea of of the Christian God. He's just a guy that made a clock, and I'm watching it run. I really don't give a shit about anything unless it goes real bad. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I'm not saying I believe that. That's just my interpretation of the God I read in this in book. These, okay. So this this curious house was three stories in height. The lower floor consisted of one large room known as the refectory, connected with which were three small antechambers, two of which served as pantries for storing the provisions and necessities for use during the 40-day seclusion, this ritual I'm about to describe. Okay, so there's a pantry and a kitchen? Mm -hmm. And the remaining chamber constituted the receptacle for which paraphernalia was used by the brethren in their ceremonial so, so like a little lab? I it's very <laughs> that's very it's a curious wording. <laughs> yeah. Um paraphernalia for their rituals. So this could have been like a changing room where they get into their their okay. special temple garments. This place. could have been where they kept the entheogens. The, right. Like it that's well, very that's what weird I kind of thought wording. the pantry was, but so they could have had their little cauldron and mm-hmm. their wood supply, I well, guess. Well, if there were entheogens uh present, they probably would have been <clears throat> held in ceremonial vessels of some kind. Uh, so, and that would have been a place where you would have stored stuff like that and okay. uh, making it easier to re- see who's get, who has access to it than like if it was just in the kitchen. You know okay. what I mean? yeah. So you could okay. keep it in a locked room. Uh, the second floor was arranged so as to form a circular chamber without any window or means of admitting external light. If you remember so, the psychedelic episode, yeah. uh, we talk about ex- how important that variable is. In the center of this chamber, there was a small table or pedestal on which was placed a lighted lamp, which, during the practice of the rite, was kept burning continually. So it was a very, very, very low light. Uh, one little mm-hmm. lamp in the center of a room that big wouldn't have created much light, and it would have allowed the people helping the participants to see what they were doing right. while the participants wouldn't be distracted by the light. Right. Very, very clever and and simple. Uh, Around this pedestal were arranged 13 cots or pallets like the radiating spokes of a wheel. This chamber was used by the secluded votaries as their sleeping room and was known as Ararat, another sacred mountain in the Bible where God talks to people. Okay. Uh, Well, Ararat's where uh, I think Noah lands his ark. Oh, okay. When when everything flooded, the place his his boat landed on was Mount Ararat. The third or upper story was the mystical chamber where the arcana of the rite were unfolded to the secluded. So they would spend most of their time in this second chamber with very little light. And then when they went up to like receive washings and anointings or to receive antheogenic administration or like any ritual was took place in the up, upper third room. And this, again, follows kind of how Mormons built their temple rites. Okay, so they'd prepare it downstairs, administer it all the way at the top floor, and then go back down to the middle floor? Yeah, it, it so the people that are helping the members that are going under this ritual, there's like helpers and there's the people actually doing it. Yeah. People actually doing it stay on the second floor. It allows the helpers to go down, prepare food, and do all their stuff without bothering anyone. Oh. And that, Because if you've ever been in a wooden house, like the, the upper floors make a lot of noise so if there's no one on the third floor except during ritual it leaves the second floor largely quiet again another important variable so that the participants aren't distracted by 
uh, what the helpers are doing Got to it. prepare for the day's stuff. That makes sense. And it's very well thought out. Yeah. Uh, so this third upper story was a plain room measuring exactly 18 feet square with a small oval window in each side, opening to the four cardinal points of the compass. Again, this is like very magically thought out. So there's four windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the third story. Yeah. Not in the second one. Yeah. yeah. Access to the chamber was obtained through a trap door in the floor, and it was here in that the ceremonies of the rite were performed by 13 brethren who were striving for moral regeneration and seeking communication with the other world. 13 adepts who had passed through the physical regeneration were I'm necessary. Sorry, nothing sounds more entheogenic than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, just, just wait. 13 adepts who had passed through the physical regeneration were necessary for this latter ceremony, which lasted 40 days. So you even went through rituals to prepare yourself for this ritual. Yeah. Um, and You're getting based in on that how, headspace. Based on how intense this ritual is, I can only imagine like what you had to do. So the ritual that they did further states that at the end of the 33rd day of seclusion, a visible intercourse... How many days? Uh, this is It's a 40-day ritual. Okay. Um, I cut out a lot of it just because... Yeah, no, that's it, fine. Whatever, but by the 33rd day, this is where things get nuts. Okay. Um, Wait, are they doing this every day? Yes. For 30 They live in this, they days. live in there for 40 days and people take care of them. That's why the and layout they, was so important. Okay. And by the end of the 40th day, the, the like last week of this ceremony is just like a week long, you're tripping balls. Wow. And <laughs> so we'll get, we'll get into how this works and why. Okay. But by the end of the 33rd day of seclusion, a visible intercourse commenced between the brethren and the seven archangels. Intercourse meaning just communication. Okay. Not, like, just, <laughs> not, not sexy. Checking. It never gets sexy. Ah. I'm sorry. And they list the seven archangels. Aniel, Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, Uriel, Zobayakiel, and Anakiel. This visible communication lasted until the end of the 40th day when the labor was finished and each of the adepts received from the senior archangel a parchment or scroll on which was the seal or sacred pentagon containing the ineffable name. I'm so immature. They were given magical parchments with esoteric note. Mm -hmm. we'll get, it's well, just striking. I... If you've been listening to the narrative episodes and you're like where we're at and you've heard Joseph talk to the angels and he gets these gold plates, like this is all... But I, in my right head, I I was thinking of um, like they're all sitting there and they're calling these angels. And then, did you ever see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, where they are samurais? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, that's the third one. Oh, third one. Sorry, we don't speak of the third one. Well, I imagine. they changed April in the third one, and I will I would I wouldn't watch the third movie because I was in love with April. April was great. Yeah. But I just imagined like them and there was appearing no in the samurai outfits <laughs> for whatever because it makes no sense. They but do I was have like, flaming swords. Okay, uh, maybe that's why. But that's wearing... yeah. You just started listening off, and I was like, Raphael, <laughs> yeah, Michelangelo's come back. They all have colored masks. Yeah. All right, but sorry, I'm immature. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, we had intercourse with them. The the attainment of this great treasure completed the moral regeneration, or as it is known among the Bundeschaft, the state of primitive innocence. Um, and again, this like moral regeneration or regeneration of the body and this connection of the, the soul and a regenerated body is another thing that is key to Mormonism. Okay, I don't, I don't um, know that, so... 
Yeah, well, the fact that all of this was happening a hundred years, like right next door <laughs> to where Mormonism starts, mm-hmm. is just this is why we're going. Wait, a hundred years prior or during mm-hmm. the same time? No, for a hundred years prior to Joseph okay. Smith starting the religion, this was going, this on, was going on just in his back backyard, okay. essentially. And uh, while they were doing this, and the, the cloister had kind of fallen into. Um, Beisel had died at that point, and there was like power struggles, like oh, with any cult. Okay. And so there were itinerant um, proselytizing ministers from this bre- this Ephrata cult that were traveling up and down Vermont and New York and stuff, trying to get people to come to Ephrata. Okay. So the idea that Joseph Smith met and knew some of the people from Ephrata mm-hmm. is very likely because he lived in their stomping ground. For sure. Anyway, I keep digressing. I'm sorry. The the fortunate adept who had thus successfully completed this ordeal with physical body as clean and pure as that of a newborn child, his spirit filled with divine light with vision without limit and with mental powers unbounded would henceforth have no other ambition than to enjoy the complete rest while waiting for immortality. When he should finally be able to say himself, I am that I am. That is, you're basically saying that I am a God. That's the, those are the words that, God spoke to Moses in the Bible. Oh. So at the end of this 40 days, you have gone through a... Um, a rebirth. A rebirth, and that perfect union of soul and perfect body, you are now a, like a little baby God. And that's that's this stepping stone thing that we were talking about that's uh, very hermetic, and that the Mormons duplicate later. Um, okay, so they're so all... So this... You had got a, 13 little baby gods. <laughs> yeah, every 40 days, you get 13 new little baby gods. <laughs> Uh, The candidates for this state of perfection accompanied by a single attendant, so one guy taking care of all 13 of them, is to... One? Mm-hmm. It's only one guy? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure they have rounds, but like... Oh, okay. It's just one person taking care of them at any given time. Uh, Is to retire to a hut or cave in the forest on the night of the full moon in the month of May, and for the following 40 days is to live secluded according to the strictest and most austere rules of the order, mortifying the flesh and passing his time in fasting and prayer, his meals consisting merely of broths deprived of fatty substances, (laughs) comprised mainly of laxatives and sanative herbs. You don't know it's good unless you're shitting. That's that 19th century medical... Flush it out. Yeah. <laughs> Logic. It is. Um, and no other drink being used than rainwater, which has fallen during the month of May. So, so very... he takes care of these 13 people and then when for they're done, a, over a month. And then when they're done, he goes and secludes himself. All of them do. All of them do. Mm-hmm. Oh, he has to still so stay an, with them? There's in... an integration period, too. Oh. So this, this, this thing lasts. This is what I was talking about. Um, I've mentioned the... Abramel and the mage ritual. Uh, it's a grimoire that is like this ritual on how to contact your archangel. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a, a six month to two year ritual, depending on how you do it. And this is like a, what seems to me a crammed down version of that. Okay. Um, which is actually what Aleister Crowley was doing. But even more crammed. But even more crammed. He was like, I can cram this down into like weeks. And these guys were doing it. But following entheogenic protocol that we use today, they were doing a prep thing to get you in the right mindset, doing a 40-day ritual, and then had another 30 days of integration afterwards. So very serious and like probably had phenomenal results for the people that did it and survived. (laughs) I'm sure there were people that didn't. Uh, That's intense. Okay. So then they just lived off of broths Mm -hmm. and rainwater. 
Oh, no, no. You did get a piece of hard ship biscuit or dry bread crust did you was say allowed. Shit biscuit? <laughs> ship biscuit. Oh, it's like a it's like a I'm sure they would translate it as shit biscuit. <laughs> Probably tasted a lot like that. Cool. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, it was probably really amazing. On the 17th day of this uh, abstemious life, the recluse, in order to further reduce the subjugation of physical nature, had several ounces of blood taken from him. What? <laughs> After which what, certain... What, leeches? Uh, no, they'd probably just cut, cut do a you a bloodletting. Cool, blo- okay, um, cool, because you're which, not already exhausted. <laughs> and deprived of nutrients and probably mm-hmm, lost mm-hmm, a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, After which certain white drops were administered. And oh, is this that, is oh, this is where oh, we get into it. Okay. Uh, the white the white drops and everything comes in whites and reds. So there's always a white thing that's a preliminary, and there's always a red thing that follows it afterwards. Interesting. And it's either a liquid or a powder. And P.D. Newman's work, I'll, I'll kind of rant about him in a minute. Yeah. But his work gets into what is the white yeah. and the red. Yeah. Uh, so these white drops were administered after a bloodletting. Six drops of this elixir were taken at night and six in the morning. Increasing the dose by two drops a day until the thirtieth, thirty-second uh, day. So from day seventeen to day thirty-two, you're taking an increasing dose of this white elixir while you're getting bloodletted. Probably tripping um, some serious. And on the thirty-third day uh-huh. through the fortieth day is when you see things. So, so they s- they they're administering this slowly and then just stop. I, we'll get into it in just a second. Let me finish okay. this real quick, and okay. I'll tell you what I think is going on. Okay. The composition and preparation of this elixir was a secret known only to such adepts as were admitted into the highest mysteries, and so securely was this secret guarded that the component parts were never even revealed to the votaries of the calico, the, the people in Ephrata. On the 32nd day, as the first rays of the rising sun gilded over the horizon, a further quantity of blood was drawn from the brother who was undergoing this ordeal, who was then to retire to his couch and there remain until the end of the quarantine. At sunrise on the 33rd day, the first grain of the materia prima was to be taken. So the materia prima is the red thing. So he gets this... What does materia prima mean? The prime uh, the material? Primal material. It's like the first, the, the the thing which can make all things. It's like a, it's, it's like that uh, wave versus particle theory. It's the primal material can be anything it needs to be. So it's the seed from which all other material can grow. Okay. Um, and what I th- what this sounds like to me is that with ayahuasca protocols, they're given what what's called dieta where you, you're on a very strict diet, much like this, mm-hmm. for about 30 days. Okay. And then you take a very strong MAOI and you ingest a bunch of DMT, which normally your gut breaks down DMT. If you have a uh, monoamine, oxidase, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, an MAOI, it inhibits that action so that your, your gut can actually absorb DMT. Oh. And it makes DMT orally active. What this sounds like to me, and this is what P.D. Newman's work is about, is that the white elixir is an MAOI. Okay. And that you're given an MAOI on a diet for many days, and then you're given the red elixir after your body's been prepped to take DMT and actually absorb it. So the MMAOI doesn't actually do anything. It do, I mean, it can. Uh, like Pagam and Harmala is an MAOI, and it's also psychoactive at okay. certain doses. Okay. So... It can, but the real blow your dick off yeah. uh, entheogenic session is when the DMT is introduced. When you combined it, okay. Yeah, and so this is what they're doing for forty days. That's wild. 
It's it, this is and this is going on in the 1700s in Pennsylvania by a bunch of German pietists that people would be like, oh, they don't, they would never use drugs. It's like, oh, they used all the drugs. And they <laughs> just the, a bunch of. The good I imagine drugs. a bunch of radagasts. <laughs> yes, it was very. It was like if a bunch of radagasts yeah, lived in the wilderness doing really a bunch happy. of drugs. Like I, I don't hate these. Guys and these at all. guys lived four miles from where most of the Book of Mormon is is written. And like, so, and again, these, they had itinerant missionaries running around all over the place. And as we'll see, there was a a physical person that Joseph identified as Moroni that was giving him information and stuff. And we'll get into that in the next few episodes, Mm. but like, there's a reason I'm talking about this. (laughs) It's not just speculation. So this materia prima is the substance, I'm again, quoting from this, this book, The materia prima is the same substance which God created to confer immortality upon man when he was first made in paradise, but which, by reason of man's wickedness, was lost to this race, and at the present time was only to be obtained through or by favor of such adepts as were within the high circle of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. So, again, it kind of goes back to that revival of Adamic knowledge. So the perfect knowledge of Adam. Mm-hmm. He knew all things because God literally was his men- his teacher. Um, and it has since fallen from grace. They are attempting to revive that via entheogenic rituals by con- contacting the seven archangels and God himself. Is to- that why women aren't involved? <laughs> Probably, because, you know, women are evil. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Ephrata cloister did have um, married into so like there were families that lived there um, and they had like a separate protocol and like way of living and it was only like the male celibates the members of this brotherhood of Zion that were allowed to go into the temple and do these crazy rituals yeah. so you could be a married guy but as long as and, and oh, participate this but you and your wife you had to be celibate for like a certain amount of time and okay. you and your wife couldn't live together for certain periods of time. and But you could have a family and all that. you could, yes. Oh. Yes. Okay. And so after this ritual, you could go back to, like, you could go back to your family and start, you know, living that. You just wouldn't be a part of this anymore. You were just um, basically given the keys and the new body and all that, all that stuff. Interesting. So again, from the book, if we need to get any less ambiguous, <laughs> less ambiguous, <laughs> The effect of this grain of elixir was that the moment it was taken, the neophyte lost his speech and power of recollection. Three hours later, convulsions and heavy transudation set in. Oh my gosh. After these had subsided, his bed was cleaned by his attendant or serving brother, probably because he shit himself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) And a broth was made from lean beef and sundry herbs. On the next day, the second grain of the materia prima was taken in a cup of this broth. The effect of this dose he was did that again? Mm-hmm, you do it every day for the and it increases in dose until oh, the last shit. day. The effect of this dose was that, in addition to the above described symptoms, a delirious fever set in, which ended with a complete loss or shedding of the skin, hair, and teeth of the subject. This is what is known as um, tra- like traditional. Um, shamanic dissolution in a lot of indigenous initiation rites Mm -hmm. the process like when you're initiated into this part of it is a visionary experience where other worldly beings either to eat you tear you apart break you into something and like 
you almost always shed your hair, your teeth, your skin. They actually lose their teeth and everything. They don't physically, but they experience themselves doing it. And the experience of being dismembered and then put back together by angels. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is what's known as shamanic dissolution. Okay. It's where you, you, LSD has a similar effect, right? Where you feel like you're being. Well, this is an archetypal experience. So this is something you don't even need to take drugs to do. But these people were giving drugs because, again, that statistical reliability. It's like if I have 13 participants that have to do this for three months, um, I want to make sure that all 13 of them get this experience. Well, and this is much more uh, (laughs) intense. Intense. So that's what we're – this was them experiencing their bodies being dissolved and regenerated. This didn't actually happen. Okay. Just want to make sure Um, I – you know – on Again, the... I'm picturing a Radagast, so <laughs> he's looking real thin and pale. And he's losing his skin, hair, and teeth. That's what I thought, but I'm glad that's not happening for reals. Um, on the 35th day, a bath of certain described temperature was taken. The following day, the third and last grain of the Materia Prima was taken in a goblet of precious wine, the effect of which was a gentle and undisturbed sleep, during mm. which a new skin appeared and mm. the hair and teeth which had been shed two days before, were also miraculously renewed. On the awakening of the subject, he was placed in an aromatic herb bath, and on the 38th day of the ordeal, an ordinary water bath in which saltpeter had been dissolved was taken, so Epsom salt, after which the votary resumed his habit and exercised his limbs. The next 39th day, ten drops of the elixir of life, also known as the Grand Master's Elixir, or balsam, was administered to him in two large spoonfuls of red wine. I've heard of so this is the third thing they're taking on the 39th and 40th day. It's killing me. I want to know what it all is. <laughs> I know, right? Everything. Well, and he even said earlier, it's like, we're not going to know this. This was such a big secret. Nobody but like a handful of men knew how to make this. Ah, yeah. and they never write shit down. Of course. So with the end of the 40th day, which ended the period of perfection, the votary completely rejuvenated and restored to the state of innocence of which mankind had been deprived by reason of original sin, now leaves his cell with the power to lengthen his earthly existence to the limit of 5,557 years and live in a state of health and contentment until it should please the almighty ruler of the universe to call the perfect adept to the grand chapter above in the skies, unquote. Finally, I finished. Um, <laughs> so they probably come out or imagine themselves coming out like like Jim Carrey calling the animals towards him. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. in actuality, they are like rolling out in like probably a wheelbarrow just like, looking I like, did it. Looking like um, <clears throat> concentration camp survivors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like it. this was a grueling ordeal. So bad. Um, but he did it. But she did it. I wonder and how many of them died. I people had to have died. Oh, absolutely. Like your bloodletting, you like people absolutely. had to have died. And and they don't understand like now we know like if you have heart issues, don't use psilocybin <laughs> right? or you know like that they, they don't know that stuff. Mm-hmm. We and don't even really fully to the wall. know it. So this yeah. This is as hard as it gets. Whee. The only thing I can say about this is that it was it seems to be uh completely consensual. So people were you knew what you were getting right. into. At the very oh, yeah. least, we can say that the people who died probably chose yeah, to take the risk. Yeah, you chose that. Absolutely. Um, that can't always be said. There's a lot of people today even <laughs> that aren't so uh, careful about educating people. And there's a lot of non-consensual things that get uh, perpetuated in that community. Yeah. But that's another. <laughs> it is. 
So this absolutely grueling 40-day ceremony had virtually every hallmark of chemically induced theophany. It's more than 40 days. From Well, yeah. So like it's, what is that? That'd be 70, probably upwards of 90 days this whole thing probably took from start to finish. Oh my gosh. From diet restriction and a devoted religious space to sitting attendants and guides, which eventually resulted in classic shamanic dissolution or ego death. And a subsequent spiritual restoration of the initiate. Ego death. I yeah. like it. Sorry. It's uh, there... pretty cool. It's, it's my new band name. <laughs> yeah, it's my metal band. Yeah, it's my metal band name. Um, there was certainly ample opportunity for not only uh, several delivery agents, as at least three that we've discussed, but dozens of plant sources which could have been used in conjunction with one another in order to create an assuredly profound religious or mystical experience. It's insane. The mind just kind of boggles at the undocumented trip reports that must have emerged from this, uh, <laughs> these kind of entheogenic sessions. I want to know! Um, and sadly, historic, historians can only speculate as to the precise re- recipe for the Materia Prima or the Grand Elixir uh, used in Afrata. That said, P.D. Newman, as I've mentioned, uh, who I'll speak about in just another second, has, like I said, rather convincingly linked DMT use with this kind of ceremony. Okay. The white substance he postulates to be the MAOI and the red to be a DMT extraction of some kind and the grand elixir to probably be a DMT extraction with other things added in, which is why it induced sleep instead of something else when they took it. Okay. Um, I don't know enough about... And this is very likely uh, extracted from acacia. So acacia... Did they have access to that? Yes, acacia is everywhere. Okay. And most species of acacia contain DMT in the in the root, root bark. Okay. So uh, another thing that's striking is that they were... In Judaic culture, um, acacia is venerated because it was the wood that was used to build the tabernacle, their temple, mm-hmm. and it was also the wood that was used to build the Ark of the Covenant. So okay. the Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant thing that melts Nazis' faces, yeah. um, that was built out of acacia wood. Okay. And the, um, the fact that they were using these biblical terms to talk about their temple and I don't have any evidence for this, but because they were using Masonic ceremonies, this is essentially a Masonic ceremony that was used uh, by someone else in Europe called the uh, Egyptian Rite. And they definitely worshipped acacia. So by correlation, by correlation, this is, uh, you can kind of speculate that uh, they were probably sourcing their DMT through acacia extracts. Okay. Now, I don't um, know if you can... Is acacia a species of tree or is it a very specific tree? It's a species tree? of tree. Okay. It's so... one of the most common on the planet. Okay like black locust uh mm-hmm. there's a bunch of like acacia varieties you would know of is a mimosa tree and acacia uh, mimosa is very closely related to okay. acacia and they're classified differently now but okay. actually originally they they thought acacias and mimosas were the same one so okay. when you look in old botanicals yeah a lot of the time mimosas and acacias are intermixed okay so they have similar type of leaves like a mesquite tree i'm wondering mm-hmm. if they have that type of leaf okay kind yep. of thorny okay and a lot, a lot of them have DMT in the root bark, such uh, that you can extract it with very simple, like kitchen chemistry. So, if you have an alchemical still, and you have the lab equipment that they had, this it would take nothing to make. Like okay. the things they were doing uh, in terms of chemistry were way more advanced than what you'd have to do to extract DMT from acacia. It's it's a pretty simple process. Interestingly enough, and perhaps hinting towards the uh, prevalence of such rituals. I mentioned uh, there was a place in Europe at the time, not just Afrata, that was using a ritual called uh, the Egyptian Rite. This was used by Count Alessandro Cagliostro, 
a kind of infamous Mason who was running around Europe at the time. Okay. And and from P.D. Newman's work, mm -hmm. it verifies that this Egyptian rite was pretty obviously an acacia extract of DMT. Oh. And the fact that these German pietists were using the exact same ritual. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. That's to, amazing. To do this says that it, even though they don't say they worshipped acacia and that they got a DMT extraction from acacia, the fact that they're using the same ritual this other guy was using mm -hmm. and he said that's what he used. He just flat out said it. Or he, he did it in his own... In Masonic symbolism, okay. yes. Okay, cool. By venerating the acacia in certain ways and showing you how to... There's yeah. ways to do this they without saying it. the art, okay. Anyway, uh, finally, P.D. motherfucking Newman. Uh, <laughs> 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 this guy, this guy's... His work has helped mine uh, immensely. Alchemically Stoned is his book. If you haven't read it, it's about uh, drug use in Masonic ritual. Uh, it's important to my work because a lot of Mormons were Masons. Someday I'll get to it. It is uh, way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to catch up. Petey's way over my head. Petey's <laughs> way over most people's heads. Um, he's a brilliant researcher, uh, and his book is it's one of the densest. He doesn't write really long books. Like Other authors, if they covered the material he does, would take yeah. like four or 500 pages, and he does it like... A hundred or two. Yeah. And it's just like information, 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 information. And he doesn't spend a lot of time giving you the, the filler because yeah. there's no reason to. He's just like, no. Oh, geez. Oh. Hi, listener. <laughs> <laughs> we had to stop because um, remote homeschooling uh, started. And so <laughs> we're starting up again. This episode is running a little long. So mm. we... Uh, ran past our time and the timer went off. We had to get the kids uh, doing their stuff. So, back to Petey Newman. <laughs> yeah, I was blowing Petey in his work for a second. <laughs> you might so. want to say that so differently. <laughs> Please say it um, differently. No, we'll leave it. Just as <laughs> is. So, uh, <laughs> Petey's work is really awesome. Um, I reached out to him a few years ago and have been harassing him uh, incessantly since then. He's really nice about it. We keep in touch occasionally. And he's been really nice enough to let me read some of his new work. Um, and while I cannot yet cite it or tell you much about it. <laughs> Which is probably um, killing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's really good. Um, he, I can tell you he has made a very satisfactory chain of custody from John D. and Edward Kelly's red powder and white powder thing. Uh, what Newman theorizes to be a DMT extraction. Eventually to that of the men traveling in Germany to this group in Ephrata. So cool. in his next book, he like f gives me a chain of custody that I can really? cite in my, in my book. And, but I can't tell you about it now. <laughs> so I need to read it. I need to be smarter. <laughs> it was uh, the same red powder that allowed them to speak John D and Edward Kelly with angels in much the same manner that Joseph Smith Jr. also used to translate the book of Mormon. Fascinating. Um, so I'll keep you posted on when that's all coming out. But check out P.D. Newman if you don't know him. I'm hoping maybe eventually I'll, I'll con him into coming on and doing like a, a tangential rant episode on John D. with me. That'd be so great. Um, but we'll see. Maybe that's, that, that's coming down the pike. I'll see if I can convince him. Okay, so back to Ephrata stuff. Ephrata. Um, Ephrata. Sorry. Conrad Beisel, the guy who founded Ephrata. 
uh, was allegedly apprenticed by an unnamed adept or a guy who is really good at alchemy. That's they call them the adepts. The adepts. Okay. Uh, uh, and he was initiated into another an band unadep- name. <laughs> Sorry. What? Sorry. It's another band name. Another the band adepts. Name. That's, the a, that's my punk band. Okay, go on. Um, and he was initiated into some unidentified Rosicrucian organization while in his early twenties. Uh, Rosicrucianism was this movement in Germany of like intellectuals that were clearly, again, probably using drugs and using alchemy and alchemical language to kind of find the other people in the area that were like-minded. Do you know what the breakdown of that word is? Uh, Rosicrucian, something about the Rosy Cross, members of the Rosy Cross or okay. something. Okay. Um, and cause didn't, wasn't Adam the one who was like told to plant roses? No, this comes from, uh, so Rosicrucianism comes from, it was a bunch of Germans in the 1500s that were publishing these periodicals that were claiming to be from this guy, Christian Rosicrantz. Oh, uh, and he okay. was a, some adept that was basically making a manual that was like, Hey, I'm an adept. Here's my presentation. So the these world. are groupies. Okay. And off of this. If okay. you too are an adept, I will find you, but publish something similar and mm-hmm. I'll come find you. Actually, cool. um, Isaac Newton um, dedicated a lot of his like books to mathematics. He was an adept? No, he, he, published, he would publish books of mathematics and then dedicate it to members of the Rosicrucian, ah, the Rosy Cross. Okay. In, in, in att- an attempt to be like, hey, I'm smart. Induct want, me into your yeah. membership and I'll be, I'll be a member. And a bunch of people that were like the intellectual giants of that era mm-hmm. were trying to seek membership to this organization. Cool. And it may not have actually ever really existed. It seems to have been like a, a thing that created a bunch of splinter groups that were trying to pretend to be that group. Um, and so like there's a bunch of Rosicrucian organizations running around in Germany at this time okay. that were using drugs and uh, alchemy and all this stuff. Okay. But, None of them really, there was no like unified Rosicrucian organization that anyone can really track down. Cool. Um, And this tied in closely with the Masons that were emerging at almost the same time, just a few years later. In Germany? In in Scotland first and then throughout Europe. Okay. But like a lot of the same people that were involved in this were all kind of doing overlapping and there's overlap between the Masons and the Rosicrucians and their ceremonies and stuff. So the, 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 um, 40-day ritual I just described yeah. is described as a Rosicrucian ritual. Although, like I said, it was a strictly Mason ritual used by Cagliostro in Europe for like four years I later. Thought, oh, I thought it was Egyptian. <laughs> he called it the Egyptian rite, but it wasn't Egyptian. It's not Egyptian. It was, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was confusing. It gets really squirrely because everybody's talking over everybody and <laughs> there's overlap. Well, and, and they said they were... Uh, studying Kabbalah and so yeah, and I everybody's <sighs> dipping their toe and it, it's how many pies can I stick my finger in and, oh, all right um, I mean I get it they were just really into they sound like a bunch of researchers they are and it's just a bunch of like geeky nerds that are all trying to hang out and do drugs together and um, experience the yeah. divine um, <laughs> I wish they had d <laughs> um, as early as 1738 Shortly after establishing the group in Ephrata, he, uh, Conrad Beisel, established an alchemical laboratory strictly with the intention of producing the Philosopher's Stone. And like his, uh, like I had mentioned, P.D. Newman in his work, 
he makes a lot of correlations between the philosopher's stone and uh, a DMT extraction, which are like crystals. Okay. And it, yeah, you should probably explain that because I, I, sh- I like, again, don't I can't, know anything. I can't get into. I'll, I'll rant for twenty minutes about okay. this. Okay. But, but but explaining that it's crystals is the philosopher's helpful. stone was described in a, as in, as like a red stone. Okay. And that red powder, red material, red stone thing. So it's theorized that maybe this is a big ass crystal of DMT. No, it like. DMT, if extracted properly, is like gold, and the philosopher's stone is described as being like either crimson or right. gold, or it's like some kind of like rosy gold color, okay. which would make sense for the, the range of extraction methods and how good you are at doing it. Okay, um, and it's always described as a universal salt, which okay. a DMT extraction are technically salt crystals. Okay, okay. so. He, he, I, I, again, I could rant about this. For no, 20, but I think maybe I'll get Tweedy to do this for me yeah, yeah. eventually. But like, no, that's, but that's the helpful. correlation. And the Philosopher's Stone, the Materia Prima, the Grand Elixir, all those big words are basically, he argues, DMT. Okay. Um, and different extractions or delivery methods of DMT. Because some okay. people are smoking it. Some people are drinking it. Some, But there's always like a white thing that is an MAOI and a red thing that is almost always what looks like DMT. Okay. So it's important to mention that after establishing this alchemical library, the mystical German connections back in Europe that Conrad Beisel was uh, main- maintaining remained active. And uh, before the establishment of a lab in Afrata, members were importing a gold tincture from their former countrymen. So they were shipping this mysterious gold tincture from German adepts back in Germany, uh, that Conrad Beisel was in touch with. And then he established the alchemical laboratory, and they didn't need it anymore, so they were making Doing their own. Doing it themselves. Um, gold tincture was something that, much like silver, um, what's the silver thing people take? Oh, is this sovereign? No, it's not sovereign silver. Um, colloidal yeah, co- silver? Collo- colloidal silver. Uh, and you can, like through alchemical methods, make a similar thing out of gold, and that may have been what they were importing, but I really don't believe it was, given what it seems like the gold tincture and the master elixir did, because <laughs> colloidal gold does not do that to you. Uh, it does not make you lose your hair, teeth, and skin <laughs> and see angels. How do you know? <laughs> That's true. I've never <clears throat> taken it. Ever a poor commune, it is revealing that the cloister always maintained a surplus of this prima material or, or gold tincture and the mysterious, its involvement with their mysterious initiatory practices. Again, we don't know the, the recipe of it, and we may never get it, but it's pretty clear that this was an entheogenic agent of some kind. And just to drive that home, uh, one initiatory attempt by one of the members of Afrata needs to be highlighted because it ended in disaster when this man failed to follow the strict protocols that were described in that that passage. Keep in mind that the following account took place just a few years before the foundation of the temple and the rituals used by the Brotherhood of Zion. So what is it? Basil? Basil? Conrad Beisel. Beisel. He's still alive. When this is, this... So Conrad Beisel establishes the commune. Yeah. He makes an alchemical laboratory. He starts these rituals yeah, in caves yeah. and other things that they make out of the, in the hills. Oh, he doesn't then, have the temple. And, not yet. Okay. They, and they do this for a few years. Okay. And the account I'm about to give you is one of the initiatory uh, experiences that went badly 
before the temple. So in one of these caves. And I think it's what actually inspired him to build the temple because it went badly. This guy didn't follow protocol. He did it on his own because they wouldn't uh, grant him permission to do it. They they didn't let him in the group. But he knew what the ceremony was, which says to me they told him what to expect and what was going to happen. Or he could have just really done his digging like uh, Dingleberry. (laughs) Obadiah Dogberry. Uh, Let me read this. I'm sorry. You'll see it. But um, I'm mentioning that it was before the temple because I think this is the event that inspired them to. They're like, Mm. we need a place to do this. We need to really (laughs) shut this down and make people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he needed to be more professional and really be able to keep privacy, I, you think, is what? Y- yeah. And it's more about uh, controlling the variables. And okay. not every, just because everybody has heard what the ceremony is, yeah. because they haven't had it themselves, I don't think they can always appreciate why those things are in place. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so some people cut corners. Yes. And when you cut corners, this is what happens. Yeah. I do the um, same thing whenever I try to do any Julia Child recipe. Just <laughs> cut some corners because I don't Never understand. Ends up the same. Nope. So uh, this is again from Julius Sash's book, and so he, when I'm reading this, this is him reporting on this guy's uh, experience. Okay. Okay. Quote: A little insight, however, is gleaned from the IMSS of Johann Franz Reichner, who was one of the first attempts to gain physical and spiritual regeneration at Ephrata, according to the mystic ritual of the Zion. Zionatish, I'm not even going to do that. Zionic Brotherhood, the Brotherhood of Zion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was published by Francius Frankfurt, AM, 1747. To other actions of this erratic, if not insane enthusiast, we have already referred to in another place. In his written accounts, he states, In July, 1734, I came to Beisel, to Conrad Beisel mm-hmm. uh, at Ephrata and spoke to them about the way of grace. They had answered that by a strict life and bodily denial, one may grow and increase in sanctification. And the Eckerlings offered to practice therein with me and described the rite and observances as we would have have to pass through it if I concluded to enter into the matter. So they informed him on what was going on. Uh, good practices. Okay. So, well, they probably gave him a bit of an idea. He was curious and mm-hmm. they talked a little bit about it. It seems like they pretty explicitly told him what was going to happen really? because of what okay. happens next. Okay. Back to the quote. They thought that I would not submit myself to the severe ceremonial hmm. uh, because he's, I think this says like they told me what to expect and I, he was kind of on the fence like, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. And they're like, and they're yeah, like, you're, yeah a, you're a weenie. You're not going to, you're not going to hold it. Okay. And so, as for myself, I had now found food for my taste and scattered senses and answered yes to all their demands and asked leave to commence that very day. He basically was just like, no, no, I can do it. I can do it. I'll do yeah. it right now. Yeah. They marveled at my willingness, but postponed the commencement from one day to another in the hope that I should lose my desire because they were only, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they just kept saying, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I want to see how, how committed you really are. However... As I had the countersign that belongs to the brotherhood, I was last acknowledged by all as a true brother without anyone even asking me if I considered myself converted, nor did they ever examine me to see if I was in fact or not. It was not long ere I was counted among them as an important brethren, and where they were willing that I should keep the sacrament with them. Conrad Beisel and the Eckerlings even extended the offer to me several times before they had an opportunity to baptize me. But all this could not satisfy me. I asked daily, 
When shall we commence to live as you have taught me? At last I found that they were not in earnest to undertake the ritual, and that they only sought to throw dust in my eyes. I said to them, I will now commence the observation of the ritual, even if I have to carry it through alone. I, however, depended upon their promise to help me to erect the cabin or hut wherein to obtain physical regeneration. All that I asked was for them to keep this part of their promise. I don't believe him. I think they just... I think he was just impatient. I, it seems like they were stringing him along to you, kind of see. I him. don't. I don't think they were stringing him along. I think they were probably going through the regular procedures that they do for everyone, and mm-hmm. he was impatient. Well, and he and clearly they offered him some type yeah. of ritual sacrament, well, and he, he was like, "No, I want the thing. They right. want the thing." Right. And um, and they were trying to ease him into it, and he was just impatient. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, and so he goes out into the woods to build a small shed for him to do this mm-hmm. in his, on his own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and back to him. When they saw that I intended to undertake this matter in earnest, they were very unwilling for me to do so and attempted to dissuade me. They were like, there's a reason why we do this this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked if they would acknowledge that it was not right, the ritual or process as communicated by him. And they replied that it was it was correct and that one should live just a life if they wished to be sanctified, but that no one could endure the ritual, i.e. the rigorous requirements of the ritual. So they did, this says, like, they did tell him about the ritual, mm-hmm. what to expect, how it was done, and everything. Mm-hmm. And, he and that he even, understood it. And he understood it. And he even relayed it back to them. He's mm-hmm. like, did I get anything wrong? And right. they had to admit, no, you didn't get anything wrong, but you can't Don't do this do alone. This. Yeah. There's a reason why we do this this way. And he just was not going to hear it. Doubling down. Yep. Um, I then commenced myself to build a hut or cabin in which several aided me to redeem their promise, only unwillingly, however, with and with displeasure. So he guilted a couple guys into helping him build this little hut. That's interesting. Um, we then broke off all intercourse. And they were just like, okay, I, f- I told you I'd help you get but to this I want point. Nothing and to do with I this. wash my hands of this. Yeah. Hmm. Which, again, I... I this seems like very ethical guys for the time. Mm-hmm. Like this, there are people today practicing that would not do this, this, right. this ethically. So I subjected myself in my cabin to all the rules and requirements of the ritual, even more strictly than they had be- been communicated to me. So again, cutting corners, and I'm being hard, more hardcore. Jeez. He's broing it. He's like, he is yeah, bro, totally broing it. I can, I can it. so regenerate myself yeah. harder than you. No, that is absolutely what he's doing. <laughs> This went on without my attaining anything of that which I sought, <laughs> until I, at last, lost my reason and became delirious. When I was completely mad and without reason, they took me from the hut, demolished it, and confined me in a cell, guarding me by day and night. But as they could not accomplish anything, they removed me to a dark cell and beat me and lashed me so that I might recover my senses." <laughs> Oh my gosh. So he lost his mind in this in this hut. Someone came to check on him. Yeah, obviously, obviously they were watching him. They were like, this idiot. <laughs> this is going to end badly. So bad. And they take him from the hut, delirious and mad. Smash the smash hut. Smash it down and like, we can't do this again. Oh my and they gosh. put him in a cell and he doesn't get any better. And so they start beating him. Yeah. <laughs> because that's, you know, 19th century well, psychiatry. And, and I'm sorry, but like if... There, I guess they could also be looking at the potential of him dragging them all down with him if he did something. You well, know what I mean? Yeah, this this could leak out and make them yes, look bad. And right. And when they had such yeah. a good standing in yes. the community, yeah. they couldn't afford for Ex- this one asshole to yeah. fuck everything up. So I can kind of understand them beating the shit out of him. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I can. I, I can. I'm sorry. They, they've gone through a lot of work. <laughs> this one asshole. <laughs> so back to the, the quote. This is it's, We're almost done. As all proved for not, and I only became worse. Surpri- not surprisingly, you beat an insane person to get worse. <laughs> all right. They removed me to another place, and there again to another where I had more liberty. So they moved him probably to a small farm and let him like recover, rehabilitate. Yeah. Um, after which I became, I again became sane. So not surprised. They prob- probably like hooked him up with an old hermit who yeah. needed a hand yeah. and just like let him hang out and be quiet. Yeah. Um, However, not without many relapses. <laughs> so he was there for a while, like gaining his senses back. Although I wonder my reso- what they mean, though, by relapses. relapses. It, uh, traumatic entheogenic experiences, even like one, is, is a big deal and can affect people for years. Like, if this dude was doing this level of ritual mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he fucked it up, this could have, it could permanently fuck someone up. And the fact that he after after god knows who how long he eventually did recover and that's where we're we're almost at although my reason had been entirely gone everything remained in my memory and i can readily recall all so long as nothing else crosses my mind so it's that that again uh that kind of speaks to that albert hoffman quote where he was talking about his first lsd session where he was like i am an observer i know something's happening and it doesn't change my lucidity. Like, and years later, I can still remember everything in right. perfect detail. Right. And that's what he's saying about yeah. this experience. It's also saying that, and he said, it's important to have a community that supports you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is why. And when this that community is... is like, hey, dude, don't do this. You need to listen to them. Thus, I recovered and came gradually to my sound senses. But whenever my will was opposed, the turbo or frenzy and confusion again appeared. After I eventually recovered my intellect, I endeavored on three or four occasions to return to my brethren, but I was not received because I would not acknowledge that I had done wrong, insofar that I did not permit them to lead me step by step. They then rejected me a third time, and I left them on July 15th, 1735. Uh, So that was a year later. So yeah, it it took him a year. He did this for three months, and it took him almost a year to recover off of this. Okay, so he went out in the woods and did all that for three months until they ripped him out of there, mm-hmm. and then took him a whole year to come back to his senses. Okay. He and asked, I, f- I feel like they tried really hard, and yeah. really, they didn't like just be like, "Hey, you're an asshole," and like threw him out on the street. Like they really tried to recover, rehabilitate him. And, and in 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 a nineteenth century yes, terms, like yes, when ever, when all psychiatry was bad psychiatry, right. right. At, they at, did, to their credit, yeah. they eventually were like, hey, the beatings aren't working. Well, <laughs> Maybe we should just put him on a farm and let him be quiet and garden. <laughs> Maybe that'll help. Yeah. <laughs> and it did. Um, so although it, there was a long route to that good answer, I mean, they eventually got yeah, there. Yeah. They gave him a spanking. <laughs> it didn't work. So they tried positive reinforcement. So... John L. Brook, uh, the guy who wrote The Refiner's Fire, who I've been quoting from, and others have suggested that this gentleman's reaction was simply caused by an attempt to subsist solely on acorns, which there's no evidence <laughs> for. And that doesn't happen, I, th- I don't think. Um, Wait. Which, which, you know, at this point, given the information I presented in this podcast, it should seem appropriately preposterous at this point. They were saying that he was taking acorns? It, that, 
nothing in this ritual really says anything about taking acorns. No. They, they said he was living on a diet of acorns and it drove him insane. And that drove him Which insane. I just, did, that, you re- did you read the ritual? Right. <laughs> and I'm sorry, there's plenty of accounts of people getting lost in the woods and living off of things. It, and they don't require this kind of rehabilitation. Yeah, I just it's a it's a silly ex- example from people who just don't know about these chemicals. Yeah. It's like these things do exist. In the, yeah. did you read the ritual? It seems <laughs> weird that they took these things and this happened. It's not an acorn. <laughs> uh, it's not an acorn. <laughs> okay. So the the lack of educated attention to the appropriate variables during entheogenic sessions can prove disastrous rather quickly, as mm. should be apparent by now. And uh, such a deep psychological break is more than likely when considering the possibility of a failed entheogenic administration. Uh, With such a hardcore ritual, uh, these variables have to be considered soberly. And again, I think this has perhaps acted as the catalyst for the creation of the the temple just like two years later. Because they needed to to rein this in. It kind of reminds me of like, okay, so they were... You had the psilocybin group and all of that, and they were really um, being careful, you know, with how they were studying it. And then it leaked out and all the hippies got it. Or I don't know if that's the correct way to say it, but it leaked out and people were experimenting with it on their own without mm-hmm. realizing the, well, that's, the terms that, that needed to be set in place. Mm-hmm. So this is like a precursor to that. I think it just seems like one asshole who was like, I know a little alchemy. I can like, I can make what you're telling me. I know what you're saying. Yeah. And then again, it only takes one asshole to shit the pool. Exactly. Which is why they beat him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not the best psychiatric. I'm still not going to advocate that. uh, I'm not advocating it. I I just understand. I'm sorry. If I take a lot, if I do a lot of work in something and someone, one (laughs) asshole, one comes along. Uh, I. Fair fair enough. Fair enough. So now that the, what I think is unambiguous use of entheogenic sessions at Afrata uh, has been established, uh, we got to examine further the profound influence that this group had on the founders of the Mormon religion, Uh, an influence that becomes most pronounced directly in Mormon doctrine and lore. In particular, the Whitmer family, who we'll meet in the next episode, who not only played a pivotal role in the formation of the Mormon church and the publication of the Book of Mormon, but also comprised half of the original witnesses to the uh, truth of Joseph Smith's Golden Bible. That'll be the next couple episodes. We'll cover all the witnesses, but essentially Joseph got three families to sign a bunch of testimonials that said he wasn't uh, faking and that there were for real, real gold plates and he was totally a prophet. And the Whitmers are almost half of that group. Okay. Um, and I'm guessing they're upstanding citizens. <laughs> uh, they were more magic-y, treasure-diggy Christian people that looked in stones and stuff. But of course just like they Smith. were. But... Um, these people <laughs> live just four miles from Afrata. Um, eventually, okay. they'll move Joseph to their farmstead, mm-hmm. and he'll tr- he'll produce most of the Book of Mormon there. Um, and again, these people were just like a uh, stone's throw from <laughs> Frada and all this going on. Um, the Whitmer family were themselves first generation German immigrants as well. Oh. And the communication between those two groups seems 
probable, if not inevitable. Yeah. Uh, since they were in cl such close proximity. Okay. The fact that many of the quarterstones to Ephrata theology later mirror themselves in Mormon doctrine only solidifies that speculation of the Whitmer Ephrata connection. Uh, also, is that this group in Ephrata were money diggers. They like to dig for money uh, to pave the streets of New Jerusalem with gold, all that nonsense. So these guys had the same interests. They were neighbors. They both spoke German and English, and they all clearly shared a lot of esoteric Christian interests. Yeah. Um, no one talks about this enough in Mormon history, um, and no one talks about Even people that mention it, uh, like Michael Quinn and a few others that mention the Frada connection, none of them talk about drugs. And it just astounds. I'm like, did you? We read the same books. Did you just skip over these like four pages where they're doing drugs? Um, so that's not only am I bringing it up as like a correlative to, you know, an unspoken part of Mormon history, but mm -hmm. the fact that that unspoken part of Mormon history included unambiguous drug use yeah. is really, really uh, damning or not damning, but just like it solidifies this entheogen theory. So commenting on these connections, uh, John L. Brooke, the who I've been quoting from observes, quote, according to a 19th century account, the Melchizedek was actually restored in 1740, this priesthood that Joseph was claiming, uh, where three members of the Zionic Brotherhood were consecrated as priests and admitted to the ancient order of Melchizedek. The leading brother among the Zionic Brethren and perhaps a Melchizedek priest, Israel Eckerlin, who uh, in that account he was talking about the Eckerlins, that's this guy who led that group, uh, was also allowed to wear a clever breastplate sewn upon it. So the breastplate that Joseph showed up with, with the Urim and Thummim and the magic stones, these guys were doing that 100 years oh, before. so him. they had a breastplate. Because Joseph so far has just been in the woods. Yes. Uh, and uh, John L. Brooke notes, both a priestly breastplate and the order of Melchizedek would appear 90 years later in Mormon restoration. Eckerlin and his brothers had echoes in the practices of lay Germans in the area for decades to come. As extreme as they were, the Ephrata celibates were not isolated from the German population surrounding them. While the celibate solitaries lived a monastic life, there were affiliated Ephrata householders who provided a conduit to the sects and the church people. Some occult and mystical influences spread out through an alienated form among the Pennsylvania Germans, mingling with their own inclinations towards popular magic. Thus, when the Zionic Brotherhood introduced baptism for the dead by proxy, the practice spread among local Germans, surviving into the 1840s. Beliefs drawn from the alchemical worldview found expression in popular faith in alchemical nostrums. One such preparation, imported from Germany, known as a gold tincture or elixir dulcus, was widely used before the revolution and remained in use down to the 1850s. So this group is, while Joseph is making the Mormon church, this group is still doing all this. And baptisms for the dead by proxy, uh, all this stuff is popping up while he's creating it. And they're <laughs> just next door. As will be discussed at some length in the following episode, uh, after receiving the gold plates, Joseph commenced his scrying, or otherwise translating, the Book of Mormon, conducting a large percentage of these magical operations while at the Whitmer home. Being within such close proximity to the Ephrata cloister, it has been suggested that members of the cult may have inspired or even assisted Joseph during the translation. Uh, 
It is certainly worth considering that many of the monks within the Brotherhood of Zion hailed from just outside Belgium, where another cloister was located next to the hill Mormont. When these German monks landed on the shores of America, they also coincidentally landed in the Lehigh Valley, Lehi being the first patriarchal character of the Book of Mormon uh, in that lost 116 pages that we never got to see because Martin Harris fucked it up. Um, <laughs> given that historians have long suspected that Joseph inserted key personal influences into the Book of Mormon as imported characters, the idea that the Book of Mormon could genuinely hail from the Hill of Mormon is worth further consideration. Finally, it seems that the angelic character Moroni, who allegedly concealed and later revealed the gold plates to Joseph, was, in fact, a real flesh-and-blood person who was sometimes spotted around the Whitmer home during the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Hmm. This man was witnessed multiple times by several of the Whitmer family and who was then later identified as as Moroni by Joseph himself. Really? Yes. (laughs) But he would have had to have known him for a very long time. Yes. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, I think the Smith family was in connection to this as well. And that's why they knew of the Whitmers. And it's just the whole story of all these people getting together, which we'll get into, Mm -hmm. is the church's version of this, which as we've learned, is not really how things always happen. And they leave a lot of context out, such as we all knew each other from a generation before and all ran around doing money digging stuff together. Yeah. So this is why this is where this comes in. So Moroni... Was a little old man that people actually saw. Okay. And I'll. I'll a little old man. Okay. There's, I'm going to give you a few accounts of people actually seeing him. Oh, cool. Quote David Whitmer told Elder Joseph F. Smith of the Quorum of the Twelve about his wagon trip to Fayette with Joseph and Oliver Cowdery. As they traveled across a section of prairie, they came upon a man walking along the road carrying something that was obviously heavy in a knapsack on his back. Invited to ride, the man replied, No, I'm going to Camorra. Puzzled, David looked around inquiringly, but when he turned again, the man was gone. David demanded of Joseph, What does it mean? Joseph informed him that the man was Moroni and that the bundle on his back contained plates which Joseph had delivered to him before they departed from Harmony, Susquehanna County, and that he was taking them for safety and would return them when he, Joseph, reached Father Whitmer's home. So Camorra, again, is where he got the plates uh, outside of his home in Palmyra. And uh, he's, while staying with the Whitmers some distance away, there's an old man trafficking between <laughs> that area and the Ephrata area, who's apparently helping Joseph with the, the plates. Uh, this raises so many questions. It really, really, <laughs> really does. Uh, whether you buy the idea that Moroni was an angelic white Native American, <laughs> which he very much wasn't, uh, or more probably... An occultist German immigrant who could finally help the uh, so-called translation process. Uh, You still have to answer for the person's absence in the story until the Whitmer's introduction. So the Moroni being a white guy with blonde hair and uh, in white robes, Mm -hmm. which the Ephrata Cloister Brotherhood of Zion wore, sounds more like to me that he was a German immigrant rather than a white Native American. Interesting. (laughs) Um. But that's my own speculation. (laughs) Uh, Where this angel during, so like, where was this angel during Joe's run through the woods? Yeah. Where was this angel, why why was he living in the Whitmer's barn, as we'll see? Like, some of the people reported him, like, hanging out and living in the barn while the translation process was going on. And he apparently shows some people the plates in the same manner that Joseph does 
coincidentally. So um, how okay. So um, why do what angels was, What was the man's name that went off by himself and Oh, that was in the 1700s. That okay. Was, I was going to say, um, is it the same guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, like, given Joseph's description of Moroni coming in and out of his bedroom in a visionary state and, mm-hmm. like, literally, like, Star Trek teleporting in and out of his room, mm-hmm. uh, why do angels walk so much between Pennsylvania and New York if they have teleporting technology? <laughs> um, so many questions. Uh, David Whitmer's mother also claimed to have seen this old man on two separate occasions and on at least one was allegedly permitted to view the gold plates inside the Whitmer's barn in the same manner that Joseph. Her face didn't burn off? Uh, no, apparently. She may have. Who knows how that worked? It sounded like it was much like Joseph where she got to touch them and whatever. Uh, Coincidentally, the sightings occurred shortly after Mary Whitmer began complaining about the cramped conditions in which the translation process was being conducted. Uh, When this was happening, uh, upwards of four families were living in like a single uh, small cottage farmhouse. And it was very cramped. Fuck and it that. had it had two stories uh, with like a loft bedroom, and the whole translation process took up the second story. Yeah, he needed the room. He all needed himself. the room alone yeah. with the curtain and all that. Yeah. So, <laughs> four people just sitting in a room, like hanging out with each other. I know we're in quarantine, but it's it was much similar. <laughs> you had to hang out with the same people every day. And yeah, uh, Mary Whitmer, uh, Grandma Whitmer, she was like, "This to, sucks." Yeah, she started complaining. <laughs> However, after being shown the plates by this kind old man, uh, earlier identified as Moroni, Mary apparently quieted her murmuring and considering... Grandma got on board because she got to touch the plates. The plates. Okay. Um, yeah. So all of this, <laughs> uh, considering all of this and the similar theology and practices taking place in Ephrata for a century before Joseph Smith and you know decades after him... It seems much more likely that Moroni was a local Ephrata monk rather than a resurrected and white Native American. I kind of picture him as like Obi-Wan Kenobi when he yeah. like goes off. Yeah. Yeah. Sense of disturbance. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. Man, I'm not going to get that out of my head now. Obi-Wan, instead of giving him a lightsaber, he gives him plates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Makes me so happy. The area in which the Smith family and the Whitmers lived, again, was well within the territory for traveling and proselytizing members of the Ephrata Cloister. Oh, yeah. And within only a f- with only a few like factual twists and embellishments, like Smith seemed to do, um, the generally accepted story regarding the emergence of the Book of Mormon takes on an entirely new light. Indeed, often the best lies are closest to the truth. It's kind of one of those things. Um, <laughs> at the very least, the Ephrata Cloister offers a new, previously unconsidered source for entheogenic information for the fledgling Mormon church. While speculative, uh, the correlations found between Ephrata and the rise of Mormon theology is not, and further research is certainly required. <laughs> you done? I am. I should mention quickly, um, not everyone, that whole, like, remember I, I mentioned there was some confusion between Nephi and Moroni? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So some of the testimonies refer to this guy as Nephi. Okay. I because, was going to ask, but I was like, Because there was well, that confusion for the first few years. Yeah. But whoever Moroni, Nephi, whoever the angel was that was handling the plates with Joseph, mm-hmm. 
whoever that was, was allegedly a resurrected Native American who was white. I <laughs> call me a call me a skeptic. I just <laughs> I think it's much more likely that it was a, a German immigrant who wore the same Obi Wan robes and yeah. ran around with plates. So when Joseph found the books, did, was it him that smacked him? <laughs> Maybe he wasn't lying. Um, I there are there are. Uh, We'll get to it in the witnesses episode, mm-hmm. but I do think Joseph had a prop angel and we'll see it. it it'll be a few years, but there is a, a time where Joseph uses a prop angel and gets caught by the whole town. You've told me a little bit story. <laughs> he uh, essentially some, some. Don't say it. Don't. Merry pranksters. Yes. I'm just going to tease it. Some merry pranksters uh, figure out what Joe's doing with a prop angel and they catch him. And reveal the prop angel to just be a guy in robes. Just so remember that in the next two episodes when Joseph seems to get a bunch of people to share a vision for the first time. And the shared vision is an angel showing them plates. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to that. That's the next episode. Could totally see an old German dude slapping the shit out of him. <laughs> and he's getting all mad. And I it told was... you not to take your eyes off them. It was a toad. It's just mad. <laughs> just, you're a toad. Much too good for children. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today. That's my tangential rant. Uh, it's gone almost two hours. So uh, mm. we'll probably just cram a two-part episode into one. And either you enjoy it or you can't stand listening to me talk this. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> uh, but until next week. Bye. Bye.